welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you every time that we open it, that it's so helpful, it's so life-giving, it's so redirecting, it's so clarifying, Lord, that when we gather as your people before your word, we leave changed. We live with a different perspective. We live with a different way of looking at ourselves and life and, and all the things around us. And we pray, Lord, that you would do it again. We pray that you would show us with real clarity the beauty of Jesus this morning, that we would walk away knowing that we had met with the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me have you guys stand just briefly for the reading of this scripture. It's just a few verses. It's in Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. We're just going to do four verses this morning. Revelation 20, 11 says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's names were not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. You guys can be seated. We're Almost done with a series in Revelation. It's been a quick series through Revelation. The Apostle John wrote this letter, the book of Revelation, to seven churches in the first century. They were churches that needed encouragement to stay faithful to Jesus in a hostile Roman Empire. And God did this in a unique way. He, in other parts of Scripture, he's given letters and histories and psalms and proverbs. But in this case, he gave a book full of symbols, of visions. And those symbols and visions give us a new way of seeing ourselves, a new way of seeing Christ, a new way of seeing our world. It's a new way of seeing that would have given those first century believers the ability to hang on to the Lord as the world's trying to tear them apart. The book of Revelation gives God's people perspective. Isn't that important? It's one of the most important things we can have is perspective. The revelation gives us a new way of seeing. And I'll just remind you of what we've seen so far. We saw ourselves in a new way. When we saw the letter to the seven churches, we saw lots of things about ourselves in there. We saw ourselves in a new way there. We saw God in a new way in the vision of heaven in chapter four and five. We saw tribulations in a new way when we saw the visions of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. We saw our mission as a church in a new way when we saw the vision of the two witnesses. We saw our enemy in a new way when we saw the vision of the woman and the dragon, chapter 12. And then we saw our enemy's attacks in a new way last week as we saw the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon. Well, this morning we're going to see our sin and God's grace in a new way as we look at the final judgment. And we're just doing these four verses. It's a very brief account here in the book of Revelation, the final judgment. This morning we're going to look at the reality of the final judgment. We're going to look at the basis of the final judgment. We're going to look at the penalty of the final judgment and then the escape from the final judgment. So let's look first at the reality of it. The final judgment, guys, is a very unpopular reality. Would you agree? Okay. But just because something's unpopular does not make it unreal. I think a lot of times we think it does. Death, for example, is wildly unpopular and yet very real. 
Okay. The final judgment is real because God is real. Take a look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The final judgment is real because God is real. The kind of God that rules this world makes the final judgment inevitable. Take a look again at the verse. It says that he is a God seated on a great throne. God made the world and everything in it, including you. He owns everything. Everything is his. He has expectations of the things he's made, and he will set all things right in his world. Notice, too, that he's a God that's seated on a great white throne. That whiteness there indicates his holiness, that God is holy, and he expects his creation to also reflect his holiness. He expects his creation to be like him and be filled with goodness and love and truth. And guys, just before we start any further, that's a very reasonable expectation, isn't it, for the creator? It's very reasonable for him to expect his creation to be filled with goodness and love and truth, including us. The final judgment is real because that kind of God is real. A God who created the world, a God who is holy, and a God who judges. And so the final judgment's inevitable because of that kind of God. Secondly, the final judgment is how the world's going to end abruptly. Take a look again at verse 11. It's really powerful in the second half when it says this. When the throne appears, it says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. It's powerful. You see that in chapter 6 and in chapter 16. We've seen the end of the world a few times in the book of Revelation. But what it shows here is that when God appears, that heaven and earth flee away from him. It's amazing. Like, what would that be like? When Jesus returns, he's going to resurrect his people. He's going to call us to join him for his triumphal entry. He's going to remove Satan and evil, and then he's going to judge all people. And when he comes, earth and sky will flee away. When the author of a play comes and stands on the stage, the play is over and the sets come down. And that's what we have here. God is not going to be forever ignored. We live in a very God-ignoring world. God will not always be ignored. He won't be ignored when earth and sky flee away. There's coming a time when there's going to be no place to hide from God. Not only no place to hide from him physically, but no place to hide from him in distractions. A lot of people are like, well, yeah, I kind of thought of pursuing God, but I didn't really have time. So busy in my life, right? There's going to be no place to hide from him in distractions. Those will be gone. There's going to be no place to hide from him in false religions. Well, you know, I think of God like this, or I kind of want to worship him this way. There'll be no place to hide from him there. There'll be no place to hide from God in philosophical objections. It's one of the ways we try to hide from him, right? Well, I couldn't believe in a God like that. And well, I just don't really agree if God's going to be like this. We won't be able to hide from him even in philosophical objections. At this time, this text says it'll just be us and God. The final judgment is the abrupt end of the world. And you know what? We all knew it was coming. We, all, we don't know exactly when it's coming, but we all know it's coming. It's been announced. God's been gracious enough to announce the final judgment for thousands of years. He's announced it thoroughly in the scriptures throughout. But we also saw it when we looked at tribulations uh, in chapter 6 and, and 7 and 8 and 9. We saw that God actually has been announcing the final judgment through tribulations for a long time too. Every time he sends tribulations into this world, it's a signal of the coming judgment. It's like four shocks of an earthquake. They're the lighter earthquakes before the bigger one. They're warnings of God's judgment coming. And so we saw in the seals and in the trumpets and the bowls, there's warnings that these are the four shocks of the big one. 
for us, even this year, the disruptions that we've experienced in our life through this pandemic, or maybe personal disruptions you've had, or, you know, global things that happen. These are all warnings that the judgment's coming. And people know that, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. People will call you when the pandemic started and stuff like that. They'll be like, hey, is there anything in the book of Revelation about this? You know, they have a sense that this is a foretaste of something coming, and that's true. It's also been announced, guys, the, the final judgment's been announced for thousands of years in every person's conscience. Your conscience is like a courtroom where your actions are being tried and judged within your own mind. And that conscience acts as a tiny scale model of the final judgment. It's not a perfect one, but it's a picture of the final judgment. When the final judgment comes, guys, we're all going to have to admit that we knew it was coming. We knew. Everybody knew. Everybody sensed it was coming. And so that's the reality of it. The final judgment awaits every single person who ever lived. Take a look at verse 12. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Great and small. So there's, there's not anybody just, just so important that they didn't have time to appear at this summons. Right? And there's not people that are so insignificant that they didn't need to give an account. Every single person standing before the throne. It says standing before the throne. The book of Revelation uses the word standing to speak of resurrection. This is all the people that have ever lived, resurrected, standing before the Lord. It says in 13 that the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, that they may be judged. This will be the largest gathering of people ever. This is every single human being in history gathered before the throne. As the Nicene Creed says, Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. So that's the reality of the final judgment. Second, let's look at the basis of the final judgment. It's very clear on that too. The final judgment will be based on God's perfect knowledge of every person's deeds. Take a look at 12. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, these aren't literal books. This is the book of Revelation. These aren't literal books. These are symbols of God's perfect, unfailing, inerrant memory. This is within God. There is a perfect record of every word, deed, thought, and desire that every single human has ever had. Those are the books. And the final judgment is based on our deeds. Take a look at 12. It says that the dead were judged by what was written in the books, what they had done. And guys, God's final judgment is going to be perfectly just. And you might go, oh, well, good. You know, as long as it's fair, I was worried it wouldn't be fair. Right? But not so fast, guys. That's not the good news. <laughs> not yet. The final judgment will be perfectly just because it's based on God's perfect knowledge of your entire life compared against God's perfect holy law. That's what makes it just. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound good. It's God's perfect knowledge of every deed and thought and desire you've ever had, of every word, compared against God's perfect law. That's what it means to have perfect justice. And guys, we know how that would go if it were us, right? Romans 3.19 says it this way. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the purposes of having God's law, there's multiple purposes, but one of the purposes is, is that it's, it's a preview of judgment day. When you read through God's law and you compare it to your life, it's a preview of the day of judgment. It shows you how you would fare in your own works before God. And there's something really important here in the book of Revelation here about this judgment, and that's that 
People are not condemned in the final judgment just because they didn't believe in Jesus, okay? People are not condemned in the final judgment just because they didn't believe in Jesus. It isn't like people go to hell because they didn't know something theological truth or something like that. It's based on what they did, okay? The final judgment is based on what they did. It says people, um, people aren't condemned because they didn't know some theological truth. They're condemned because of their sins, what they've done. All the passages on the final judgment talk about works. And just so I'm clear here, I'm not talking about salvation by works here. I'm talking about damnation by works. That all damnation is by works. Is that all those who are judged in the final judgment and sentenced to be cast away from the Lord, it's because of what they did. And so in the end, some will get mercy, some will get justice, but nobody gets injustice. If there was ever a question of whether God's judgment of somebody was, was right, there is an irrefutable record. There's perfect evidence before him in the books, in his own knowledge of us. And so if somebody were to disagree, the Lord could say, you know, would you like me to replay the evidence? And of course we would say, no, I, I don't need that replayed. I know it's in there, right? And so that's the reality of the final judgment, and that's the basis of the final judgment. What about the penalty? This gets harder before it gets better, guys. The penalty for sin in the final judgment is the second death, the lake of fire. Take a look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We know this lake of fire, guys, is symbolic, not just because... This is the book of Revelation, but because hell's elsewhere described as outer darkness and utter darkness, and you can't have like literal flames and literal darkness together, right? These are symbols, but that shouldn't make us feel any better because these are obviously symbols of something unspeakably terrible, okay? We live right now, guys, in a time of common grace where God is blessing both his people and his enemies equally. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5. He says, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. We live in a time of common grace when God is indiscriminate in his gifts. He's giving them out to everyone. People that curse him and people that love him all are getting the gifts of God. It's called common grace. But there's a time of separation coming, guys, when God will give the new world that's made perfect to his people, and then he's going to quarantine away all those who wanted to stay in their sin. There's a time of separation coming. That's what this is about. Hell is a place void of all of the blessings God now showers out on his people. Hell is a place where people are turned over to the fullness of sin's influence. Okay, if you want your sin, and there's your sin, Right? People say things, they say silly things like, and you probably heard this, well, at least I'll be with my friends. There's no friends there, guys. There's no friends in hell because friendship is one of the greatest gifts of God. There are no gifts of God there. Um, this is a place where people are turned over to the fullness of sin's influence. All that's left in hell is the corrosive effects of sin and the weight of God's wrath on those sins. You think about like, well, why is it forever and things like that? Two reasons it's forever. One is... It's a debt that can never be paid. And two is, it's ongoing sin. You know, there's no evidence that sin stops in hell. And so there's ongoing wrath toward it. And guys, as difficult as this is, how could it be any other way for those who resent God's desire to deliver them from their sin? This is the only option there is, is judgment. Hell is a permanent state. It says in verse 14 that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is a temporary place of the dead. The lake of fire, Gehenna, is a permanent place. 
And guys, this is a very difficult reality, right? I mean, uh, didn't sleep that well last night, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about this. It just goes to show that I probably don't think about it enough, that when I spent a whole week thinking about it, that it disturbs me. It should disturb me all the time. But, you know, this is a difficult reality. This is something we recoil from the thought of. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to focus on it. And that's because God's put in every one of our hearts some of his love for his, his creation. God loves his people. People are made in his image. He loves them. And each one of us has a very strong impulse to love our fellow humans because that's God's heart put within us. And there have been some that have tried to kind of make this all less terrifying. I mean, who wouldn't want to, right? There's two common ways. There's uh, what's called universalism, and there's annihilationism. Universalism is the idea that everybody will be saved in the end. You know, that there'll be some rough spots, but then in the end, everybody will be saved. There's some versions that even say even the devil and the, and the demons will be saved. You know, not everybody says that. But, but that everybody's going to be saved in the end, that somehow they're all going to end up in heaven, end up with the Lord. But guys, a plain reading of this text just makes that impossible. I mean, I was going to go through detailed proofs, but I think you read it. Like, this is pretty straightforward, and there's lots of other passages that make it really clear that not everybody ends up with the Lord in the end. The other one, which I think is a little bit more compelling, is annihilationism. It's the idea that those who are condemned just cease to exist. That God, in the end, annihilates them. Annihilationism causes them to cease to exist. So they don't end up in hell forever. They end up just ceasing to exist. But guys, that's not compatible with what Jesus said. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person did. And that's one of the things, too, we think about, like, talking about hell, and it is compassionate, it is loving to talk about it, because Jesus did it all the time. And when, sometimes when he did it, he called them friend, you know, as he talked about it. It was that important to him. But it's not compatible with what Jesus says. Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Jesus said this. Listen to the wording really carefully. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what you have there is you have a group of people going away to eternal punishment, and you have people going away to eternal life. And so if the eternal in that part of the sentence means forever and ever, right? You do believe eternal life's forever. Then the, the punishment has to be forever too. It'd be very strange to use the exact same word in one sentence two different ways, right? That that word eternal has to mean the same thing in both. And Jesus spoke a lot about hell. And as disciples of his, we have to believe what he says. It's also not compatible with what the book of Revelation says. In chapter 14, verse 11, it describes uh, the punishment of hell this way. It says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It doesn't sound like annihilationism. And there's a lot of other texts I could give. But let me offer you a bit of relief. Would you like relief right now? Anybody want relief? Okay. Because I can't give you that kind of relief. I would love to, by the way, just say, You know what? Universalism's true. You know, everybody's going to be fine in the end. Like, personally, I like that, okay? Annihilationism, like that one too, right? That's not the relief I can give you because that's not what's here. And we got to go by what's here because otherwise we're just in a land of fairies and unicorns. And I can tell you things and that aren't true and you can feel good for a while and they won't be true. And um, Dallas Willard once said that reality is the thing you run into when you're foolish, Right? And we don't want to run into reality later. We want to know reality now. Okay, let me give you a little bit of relief. Here's the relief. I don't believe that we as Christians are expected to be emotionally okay with other people suffering in hell. Okay? I don't think you're expected to be emotionally okay with this. Okay? Um, I think this side of heaven, I can't imagine any emotionally healthy person 
being okay with the idea of people suffering in hell. Okay? I want to just like let you know it's okay to not be okay with this. Okay? Paul was not emotionally okay with it. In Romans 9, 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay? Jesus was not okay with this. He wept over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing, right? We're not expected to be emotionally okay with this. What we are expected to do is believe it. And specifically, and I think it helps to come at it this way, it's helped with me, is specifically you need to believe it personally for yourself. Let's start with you. Let's start with what you know of yourself. Do you believe that you personally deserve this punishment? And I'll tell you, I do for myself. Like, I have no struggle with the idea of hell and second, de- you know, second death and lake of fire and all that. For me, I know me. <laughs> I know my deeds. I know my thoughts. I know my words. I know my desires. I have no struggle with that. My struggle is thinking about that for other people. But for me, I can totally own it. I think that this is very just. It seems very just to me. Not that it matters, but I'm just telling you. That's, I, I'm, I'm okay with it for me. Okay, I know that when the books are open on the final day that I would not fare well and I would deserve exactly what's described here. Let me ask you for you. Do you feel that way about yourself? Do you believe that there's ample reason in your life, in your thoughts, in your deeds, in your words that you could legitimately, God's just, to condemn you to hell? Do you believe that? And I see you guys nodding. Christians believe that. That's something we are expected to believe. That's something we are expected to fully embrace with our hearts, right? And you got to realize, guys, that you believe that, and I believe that, and every other person that has reasonably assessed their life according to God's standards also believes that. Okay? This is the way I like to come at it. You believe that about yourself, I believe that about myself, and everyone else who has seen themselves clearly acknowledges the rightness of God's judgment in this passage on them. Everyone believes that. And when we stand before the throne of God, everyone that stands before the throne of God will see the rightness of it. It will be obvious because the books will be open, guys. And so God is right. doesn't really matter how we feel about it, right? He's right in what he has decreed here. We're going to see the rightness of what he uh, has decreed here. We know the rightness of what he's decreed on our own lives. And I know from your heads nodding that you agree that this sentence would be right for your life outside of Christ. And I think if we kind of extrapolate from there, everybody knows. Everybody knows, and everybody will know. Because this is compassion, right? The best use of your compassion would be to believe in hell and warn other people about it, okay? The best use of your compassion is not to be an annihilationist or a universalist. That's not the best use of your compassion. There are very few universalists and annihilationists, missionaries, and evangelists. You realize that? You know, if you got a little book, Annihilation, Great Annihilationist Missionaries of the Past, this is not a big book, guys. And, and the reason is, is because this reality drives us in love to want to warn people and tell people about the judgment that's coming. I mean, why would anyone risk death or even awkwardness to share a message about Christ to people that are going to be fine anyway? Right? But this is a thing that's growing. I mean, it's growing even in our valley. There's at least one church that I know of, that that's the way they're headed. And I think it's a massive, massive mistake, and it's not compassion. It's not compassion to deny reality. Let me put it to you this way. If you're in a burning building, being a fire denier is not compassion. Okay? Being a fire denier is not compassion. Universalism is not really compassion. Annihilationism is not compassion. It's misplaced compassion, right? 
The most compassionate thing you can do if you're in a burning building is not to deny the fire, but to point people to the way of escape. And that's what he's called us to do. So what's the way of escape? This is getting better, okay? There's an alternative to being judged by what you've done. Isn't that awesome? And did you see it in the text? It's really beautiful, the way he kind of tucks it in here. Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and then another book was opened, the book of life. And you're like, oh, good, another book. And it has a promising title, right? Don't you want to know what that book of life is about? What is it? Well, it turns out it's not a list of deeds. It's what? It's a list of names. It's a list of names. It's a list of those who get to escape the final judgment. Verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire, which means obviously that if anyone's name was written in the book of life, they escaped the lake of fire. Who are these names? How do I know I can be in there? Well, it's called the book of life. We know from chapter 13 that it's also called the book of life of the lamb that was slain. That gives us a little more information, right? And we know from uh, Revelation 5, 9, that Jesus, the lamb, was slain. And with his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so this book of life also, you know, it's a symbol, but it's in God's mind. It's a list, right? It's the book of life is a list of those who have been ransomed out of hell by the blood of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus Christ was condemned in our place for our sins. I love Colossians 2, 14. It says it this way that he canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so the image there in Colossians 2.14 is that, remember the books? Those are the books of our deeds, right? So what happened on the cross is that, is that our pages of that book, with all of our crimes, ripped out of that book, right? And then nailed to the cross in Jesus' body. When Jesus dies on the cross, he dies with the list of our wrongdoings, the list of our sins in him. That's why he was forsaken. That's why God uh, had forsaken him on the crosses, because he was bearing that full list. All those pages in that book, isn't that beautiful? That those pages that you wouldn't want anyone to read have been ripped out of that book, and they've been nailed to the cross in Jesus And so we won't suffer the second death because Jesus suffered it for us. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he didn't just suffer physically, right? He's suffering spiritually as well. He's suffering the full weight of the wrath of God. And not only are those pages of our sins removed from those books, but what's put there in its place? Perfect record of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus lives a perfect life, and those pages become ours because we are saved by works, but they're Jesus' works, not ours. We're saved by Jesus' works, not ours. And so, guys, the gospel is so unique. And I, I don't even know if you guys realize how wonderful a gift you've been given in the gospel. Because in all other religions that have a judgment day, you can't know how you'll do till it comes. You guys realize that? You talk to a lot of people today, even people that, you know, Roman Catholics sometimes, and, and even some Protestants, you'll talk to them and, and you'll say, you know, where are you going to go when you die? And they're like, I don't know. Like, I hope heaven, right? There's uncertainty. Why? Well, because it's, you know, they're thinking about their own works and how good their own works are going to be. In all other religions, we can't know what the outcome is going to be. No one can say for sure if they're going to pass the judgment until it happens, but not so with the gospel. We know for sure what the outcome of the final judgment will be if we stand before him on our own works. We know for sure that the outcome is guilty. 
And we know that from God's law, right? Romans 3 tells us, like, you, you don't have to guess, okay? You know, stand on your own works apart from Jesus. You're going to go to the final judgment. Like, 100%, you will be declared guilty. Isn't that convenient to know that? It's convenient to know that. Don't take that route. That route doesn't work. There's 100% guilt, right? There's not going to be like, well, you know, no. It's 100% guilty. And we know for sure, without a doubt, the outcome of what happens on the final judgment if you're in Christ, if you're in the book of life. 100% you're going to be declared righteous. The gospel tells us that. So the law tells us, like, don't even think about approaching the throne of God based on your own works, right? The law already tells us that won't work. And then the gospel tells us there is a 100% certainty you'll be received by God on the final day at the final judgment. You know the outcome. You know it ahead of time. Isn't that amazing? We don't await the final judgment as Christians wondering what will happen. We don't wonder. If you have Jesus as your Savior, if you're in him, if you're in the book of life, your judgment day has been brought out of the future and placed in the past. Your judgment day actually already occurred at the cross. Your sins were already judged and completely paid for. And, you know, the second death and the lake of fire, all that already happened in the past at the cross of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Your sins were already judged there and your righteousness was already declared at his resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a gigantic statement that your righteousness had been worked out. It's done. Your judgment day, if you're in Christ, has been moved from the future into the past. You look back on it. It's been all done in Jesus. Have you come to Christ for that amazing gift? I would hope that if you're in this room or you're on this live stream with us, and we've read the incredible clarity. I mean, there's no hoops to jump through in this passage. It's incredibly clear. And it's been placed before you so starkly, right? Rely on your own works. Don't come to Christ. Absolutely guilty. Second death, like a fire, okay? Or come to Christ. Be found in his book. Be found in him. Be already having had your sins judged and be declared perfectly righteous and be received by God. This is what stands before you. And it's strange that it's a choice, isn't it? It's so stark, it's so clear. And then you listen to like, you're not just like trying to avoid hell. You're being welcomed into a family by a God that loves you so much, he would give his own son. Right? People are talking, well, you're just talking fire insurance. It's like, no. I'm talking, there's, there's a beautiful thing for you to turn to, not just a terrible thing to turn away from. This is God. It says in, in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'll tell you guys, no matter what your need is and no matter how much I like you, I would not give my son for you, any of you in this room, guaranteed. God gave his own son for you. You're not just fleeing something terrible. You're being welcomed by a love you can't even understand. So amazing. A father that will love you and care for you and delight in you. And in the next week or maybe two, we'll talk about heaven. We'll talk about the place that he welcomes us into. But it's amazing. And all at the cost of his own son. If that's your hope, guys, we'd uh, invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If that's your hope, we really want you to join us in taking the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was 
handed over to suffering death, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I think about that night. Can you imagine that night? You know, this is their, their last meal together before the cross. And Jesus is going to walk out that door knowing that he's going to be pierced and suffer and die for his people. Like he knows what he's going to do. And he stops and he has a meal with them. And he just wants to make it super clear how much he loves them. And he wants to do that for you today. After the supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for the sins of many. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to do likewise. Let's first take the bread here. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take, eat this in remembrance of Christ, that he died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the body. Jesus, help us to understand even a bit more what it took for you to bear away our sin. We read in Isaiah 53 that you were crushed under the weight of the judgment of our sin. We, we don't understand that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your great love for us, that you would put yourself in that place for us. Jesus, we thank you for our, your love for us. We thank you that you have a love that no one has for anyone else. I mean, sometimes people will die for a friend or they would die for a good person, but to die for enemies. While we were your enemies, to make us your friends is amazing. So we thank you for your body broken for us. Let's take the cup. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Father, thank you. You've given us a very intense passage to, to deal with today. And we just thank you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your only son for us. We thank you that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. And I just pray for anyone that's here right now or anyone that's listening to this, that they would just reach out and believe in you. It's not something to earn. It's not something to get yourself right to receive. Just to turn from sin and trust in you. As we take in these elements, to just take in your son Jesus as our salvation, as our security, as our only hope of passing through judgment into life. And Father, we thank you that you have written our names in the book of life even before you created the world. What an amazing mystery that when we come to believe and know you, that then we read in your word that you had pursued us first. That you'd come after us first. That we came to you because you came to us. We thank you for that love. And we thank you for feeding us with this rich food of your word and from this table. Lord, we pray that the final judgment would change us. That we would see this intense, amazing 
terrifying event that's coming in history and that it would transform us. We pray that you make us thankful, joyful people. We pray that you make us worshiping people that will do anything to continue to worship you. We pray that you make us forgiving people that we would not at all want to hold any type of grudges or anger or unforgiveness or bitterness over anyone. Your word says to leave place for the wrath of God. Lord, you, you judge thoroughly. We don't need to do it. We just pray, Lord, that you give us forgiving hearts. We know that when we stand before you on the final day, we will not be holding grudges against one another. We pray you give us that heart now. And we pray that you'd make us gospel-sharing people. Lord, we have the words of eternal life from your Son. We pray that we would share them liberally. And Lord, make us holy. Make us the spotless, holy, glorious bride that you will reveal on that great day. And we pray that you do all this for your glory and praise. And in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.